Take a Bible out this morning. Find Matthew chapter 1. We're spending this month looking at Matthew 1, thinking about Jesus, asking ourselves the question, what child is this? It was a question first asked by a guy named William Chatterton Dix about 150 years ago. I say first ask, first ask in exactly that sort of uh, phraseology. He sat down and he wrote a poem, a poem called The Manger Throne. And a few years after he wrote that poem, it was taken and it was set to music, and we know it as the hymn, What Child Is This? And it's just an extended reflection on who is the baby that was born in Bethlehem. And that's what Matthew is explaining to us. He's, it's what he's spelling out for us. It's what he's detailing for us in Matthew chapter 1. And this is the fourth Sunday in this particular Sunday morning sermon series. Next Sunday, Christmas morning, will be the last Sunday. We'll, we will wrap this series up. So we are going to have church next week. We won't have Sunday school, but we'll have worship at 1030. And I hope that you'll be here for that as we finish up our series in Matthew 1. But this morning, the answer to the question, what child is this, is very, very simple. And it's an answer that at this particular church is near and dear to our hearts. The question, what child is this, and the answer this morning is Jesus is Emmanuel, which means God with us. The first week we said Jesus was the Christ. He's the Messiah. A few weeks back we said he's the son of Abraham. Last week we said he's the son of David. And this morning the big idea simply is Jesus is Emmanuel. He is God with us. So just like we've done the last few weeks, I want to read all of Matthew chapter 1, even the genealogy, because Matthew has included all of these words in Matthew 1 to explain to us who is Jesus, who is the baby that was born in Bethlehem. And so we're going to read Matthew 1 from beginning to end, and then we'll pray and we'll jump in. Matthew 1.1. 1, 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abiud, Abiud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azer, Azer the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Eliud, Eliud the father of Eliezer, and Eliezer the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. 
So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. Her husband, Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins." All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Let's pray. Father, once again, as we come into your presence, as we read your word, our plea and our prayer and our request is that you give us understanding to see the truth about Jesus, Emmanuel, and to understand the importance of it and the significance of it and the beauty of it. And Father, that when we see truth about Jesus in your word this morning, that our response would be joy and worship and praise. Father, we ask all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. A lot of you guys know the experience of living far away from family, far enough where you can't just hop in the car and jump over and go see somebody face to face whenever you want to. And a lot of you know that technology has sort of changed how we live far away from each other today. At one point in time, you just if you lived far away, you lived far away, and you didn't get to see each other unless you made that trip. But now, you can text. A lot of you text family members who live at a distance. You can call. Everybody's got a cell phone. Hop on the cell phone. You don't even have to worry about the long-distance charges or the time you're supposed to call. You just get on, and you call, and you talk to somebody. And if you're really interested in connecting with somebody, you use Skype or FaceTime or something like that, and you can see them, and you can hear them, and you can read the expressions on their faces. But you know that texting and phone calls and even FaceTime is not the same as a face-to-face visit, right? It's just not the same. And some of you say, hallelujah, it's not the same. Amen. FaceTime is even a little too much. I'm just going to keep it at the text level. That's enough to keep in touch with old Uncle Johnny somewhere or whoever. And I like the distance, and the distance is good. But others of you, you know, you say, I, I miss being with my kids, or I miss being with my parents, or I miss being with a certain family member. And there's something, as great as technology is, there's something technology can't exactly replicate, and it's just being with people that you care about. And in this passage, as Matthew introduces us to Jesus, one of the things he says, and it's a a carryover from the Old Testament we'll get to in a minute, he says, this child will be called Emmanuel, which means God 
with us. Not God sending another prophet to give us a message. Not God giving us another book to put in the Old Testament canon of Scripture. Not God giving us some sort of vision or experience of Him that's gone when you wake up. But this is God come to be with us. Now, I don't know your heart. When, when you start to think about Christmas, this may be the greatest part of Christmas in your mind. This might be the part of Christmas that gets you excited and stirs your emotions and you just get amped up about celebrating. This is God with us. But I'm going to be honest with you. I don't think most Americans get really excited about the idea that God came to be with us. And I'm not just talking about all Americans. I'm talking about church-going Americans. I know that we know we're supposed to be excited about it. It's supposed to be a big deal. It's supposed to be meaningful to us. But I just don't think most of us get really excited when we think about the idea that God came to be with us. If you want to know the truth, I think most Americans feel like, well, of course he came to be with us. Why wouldn't he want to be with us? What else does he have going on? What else is he going to do? If he doesn't come here, where's he going to go? We're the only show in town. Of course he would come and he would want to be with us. And I think we miss some of the gravity of what Matthew is saying when he says in verse 23, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and they will call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. I think we're so self-centered and so self-absorbed and so self-focused and so self-ish that we just sort of hear that as an obvious statement. Of course he came. He wanted to be with us. That's why he made us. He wanted to be with us. That just seems obvious and it doesn't seem earth-shaking. It doesn't seem highly, highly important to us. It just seems like something that we take for granted. And I think part of the problem is we don't understand the holiness of God very well. It's one of God's attributes that we don't think about often enough. If you look through the Bible and you just try to figure out how does the Bible describe God, the most commonly used description, adjective for God is he's holy. He's holy. He's holy. He's not like you. He's different than you. He's other than you. He's above you and separate from you. And along with that, not understanding the holiness of God, I think we do a lousy job, especially in the United States, at understanding what it means to call ourselves sinful people. We don't grasp the horror of it. We don't grasp the tragedy of it. We don't understand the separation that our sin makes between us and God. And so when we read in the Bible, we don't have this understanding that he's holy. We don't have a good understanding that we're sinners. We read in the Bible, God came to be with us, and we just sort of say, well, yeah, of course he did. Part of the problem, too, is not just that we don't understand who God is and who we are, but we haven't really thought through the Old Testament story very well. And we don't see how earth-shaking it is when you turn from Old Testament to New and Matthew says you're not going to believe this but this baby born to a virgin in Bethlehem is actually God come to be with you 
It's an amazing truth, and it's worth celebrating at Christmas. But before we get to that point, we've got to understand, what does it mean to call Jesus Emmanuel? And this is where we're going to go back into the Old Testament. Originally, God created human beings to live in his immediate presence. Adam and Eve in the garden lived in the presence of God. Genesis 1.27 says that God made human beings, male and female, in his image. He made them so that they could know God, that they could love God, that they could worship God, that they could enjoy God. And the Bible seems to indicate that in the evenings, in the cool of the day in the garden, God would come and he would walk with his people. And they would see him face to face. And they would talk with him. Some of you are thinking of the old hymn. He, he walks with me. And he talks with me. And he tells me I'm his own. And the Bible seems to indicate that was the relationship in the beginning. But the Bible also indicates in Genesis chapter 3 that Adam and Eve made the decision willfully, intentionally, deliberately to not listen to God and to listen to the serpent. And their sin brought separation immediately because when God came to walk with them, you remember what happened? They were terrified of God. Not a good, holy fear of God, but a guilty fear of God. And they went and they hid from God and they tried to run from God. And of course God found them, but one of the things he told them when he found them is, you can't stay here. You can't stay with me. You don't get to be with me anymore because of the sin that you brought into the world. So the exile of Adam and Eve from the garden seemed to be the end. Yes, there's a promise in Genesis 3 that God's going to crush the serpent's head somehow, but it seemed like the end. God says, you can't stay in my presence. You have to leave. And I know we think of Israel going into exile, but this is God's people way, way back in the beginning going into exile. You can't be in my presence, God says. And it looked like the end. We don't get to be with him anymore like he made us to be. And that's why when you're reading through the book of Genesis and you get to Genesis 12, there's this major plot turn, and we don't see it because we just think, well, of course God would want to be with his people. We don't understand the gravity of that. But you meet this guy named Abraham in Genesis 12, and starting with Abraham and then his son Isaac and then his son Jacob and then Joseph after him, God keeps talking to these men and he says, I'll be with you. I'm going to be with you. And God is telling the patriarchs, that's this term we use to describe Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph and all of his brothers. He's promising to bless the patriarchs with his presence. You can look the verses up over and over again. He says it. To guys who, can I be honest with you, a bunch of guys that are not all that great or holy or spiritual. He keeps saying, I will be with you, Abraham. Isaac, I'm going to be with you. Jacob, I will be with you. Joseph, even in prison, even in Egypt, even sold into slavery, I'm going to be with you. He says it over and over and over again. He promises the patriarchs his presence, and then he does the same thing to Israel. He promised to bless the nation of Israel with his presence. He said, I'm going to be with you as a people. Exodus 3, God takes Moses and he says, I'm sending you to Pharaoh. And what does he say to Moses? At the beginning of Israel becoming a people, he says, Moses, I'll be with you. I'll be with you. 
And then Israel gets out into the wilderness after the exodus. And even when they do the rottenest, nastiest things, when they worship idols instead of the Lord who just rescued them, what does he say? I'm going to go with you. And at one point it's in question and Moses says, if you're not coming with us, we're not going. you got to be with us. And God says, I'll be with you. I will be with you. And Moses dies in the 40 years in the wilderness and all of that. And then Joshua comes on the stage, right? And Joshua's getting ready to lead the people in as a nation to their land. And what does God say to Joshua? It's like a broken record. I'm going to be with you, Joshua, Moses, Israel, Abraham. He's promising these people, I will give you my presence Despite your sin, despite your past, despite what you've done, despite who you are, I will be with you. And it's not just empty promises, because the Bible says that God lived among his people at the tabernacle first and later at the temple. The tabernacle and the temple. God lived among his people. Now, fill those blanks in, and then just sort of relax and get out of spiritual mode for a second. Get out of, you know super holy mode, and just be honest with me, okay? If you in this room have ever set out at the beginning of the year, New Year's coming up, if you've ever set out at the beginning of the year and said, you know, I'm going to read the whole Bible this year. I'm going to start in Genesis, and I'm going to go all the way to the end. Sounds like a good idea. You started off January 1, you're reading in Genesis, you say, this is pretty good stuff, this is kind of interesting. These guys do some crazy things, some good stories in here. You get to the book of Exodus, and it gets ramped up, and it's super exciting. It's one of the greatest stories ever written. And then you get about halfway through Exodus, and you just quit. You just admit it. You've done that before. You get to this part in the book of Exodus where they're talking about building a tent. And what did they use on the walls? And what did they use for this? And how did they put this together? And you're reading about it, and you say, I don't get this. I don't understand this. If you've, if you've plowed through and you've made it through that, then you get a little bit later in the story and they start to build a temple instead of a tent. And it's like the same thing. They're describing it and the details and all this stuff. And you just say, it's boring. I know that's not a churchy thing to say, but we read that stuff and we say, this is just boring. I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. And it's because we are not thinking about what's actually happening. In the beginning, God said to his people in the garden, you can't be with me. You have to leave. You have to go out of my presence. But then he comes to his people and he says, Abraham, I'm going to be with you. You can't be with me. But then he says, I'll be with you. Isaac, Jacob, Israel, Joshua, the tabernacle at the temple. I'm going to live among you. It's the exact opposite of what's taking place all around Israel and all the other nations. All the other nations have all of these gods and goddesses and deities and idols and all of these things, and they're doing things, offering sacrifices to try to get the attention of their deity. For example, do you remember the story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal? What are the prophets of Baal doing? They're dancing around. They're screaming like idiots. They're cutting themselves and making blood flow everywhere. They're just trying to get Baal's attention. That's all they want. We need five minutes of your time. And the Bible says no one listened. No one paid attention. Meanwhile, you have a people who hear God say of his own initiative, 
I'm going to be with you. I'm not going to leave you. I will be with you. The word isn't always used in the Old Testament, but do you know what that is? That's grace. That's God coming to you in spite of who you are and giving you his presence. All these other nations are operating on a works-based system. We're going to do something so that our God or our goddess or our whatever will be with us and bless us. While the people of Israel just seem to be squandering it away and God keeps saying to them, I'm going to be with you. I'm going to bless you. I'm not going to leave you. I will be with you. And Israel starts out gangbusters, man. They start off on a high. Everything is great, and it doesn't take very long, and they just go bust. And I've had you fill this in the last few weeks. I didn't even put the blanks on the outline because we've talked about it over and over and over again. When they get sent into exile, when they leave the promised land and the temple gets torn down to the ground, it looks like the end of God's presence with his people. That looks like it. It looks like it is all over. It was a nice run while it lasted, but God finally had enough of these people. And the exile of Israel from the land looks like the end. But if you listen closely to the prophets, you find some hints that even though exile is coming, maybe God won't be finished with his people after all. One of those hints you find is in Isaiah 7. It's a strange chapter. You can go back and read it. The prophet Isaiah is talking to a wicked king named Ahaz. And he's giving him sort of assurance that God is going to bring judgment on his people, that there's going to be punishment and consequences for his wickedness. But in the midst of that, there's sort of a shift. And Isaiah seems to change and say, there's also going to be hope for God's people because a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and he will be Emmanuel, which means God with us. And you keep reading in Isaiah, and you get to Isaiah 9, and Isaiah says, this child that's going to be born will be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God. The child will be God. The child will be the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. He will be God with us. And when you turn to Matthew 1, and Matthew includes this little verse from Isaiah, He's describing the birth of Jesus took place in this way. And he says, don't forget Isaiah. This is what Matthew's saying to you. It's the same thing we've talked about every week in this series. Matthew's saying, I'm not writing you a new story. I'm writing a new chapter in an old story. And what you need to understand is that the child who would be God with us has been born. It's the baby that was born to Mary in Bethlehem. And it's worth celebrating at Christmas. Let me give you a few reasons why you ought to celebrate Jesus as Emmanuel. Number one, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of God living among his people. He's the ultimate fulfillment of God living among his people. John 1, John says that the word became flesh. Literally, he came to dwell or tabernacle or pitch his tent among us. The creator came to be with us. That tent that Moses made and that temple that Solomon built, they're just pointers. They're just pointing you to the ultimate fulfillment that was going to come someday. Let me tell you the the folly of the Jewish people and how this all played out. I love going out to eat. 
and I was thinking this last week, I think since I've lived here, I've had more meals out to eat with Corey Spear than any person in Odessa. So we go eat a lot. We go out and eat, and uh, we, go, we have our places we like to go, we like Mexican food. Uh, I won't tell you all our places because I don't want you to go there. I don't want it to get too crowded. So we go to some of these places, and we sit down. And you know what it's like. You go eat, right? They bring you first a menu, and you're looking at the menu, and you understand because you're smart people, okay, this menu is pointing me to something good. Something's going to come. Something that I want. Something that will be satisfying to me. Not one time in all the times I've gone to eat with Corey Spear have we sat down and they start to go around the table and they come to Corey and Corey says, you know, I think I'm just going to stick with the menu today. Just, I'm really enjoying it. Reading through it looking at your pictures, thinking about your prices. I think I'm going to pass on the food, and I'll just keep the menu and a water. Thank you. doesn't happen. It would be crazy, right? You don't go to a restaurant for the menu. You go for the food. But you understand that before the food comes, you sit down and you have something that points you to what you want. Listen. That tent that Moses put up in the wilderness and you read about in Exodus, it's like a giant arrow pointing you forward to Jesus. Someday God is going to come and he is going to be with his people. God living with sinners. It's going to be amazing. When you read about this temple, this amazing building that Solomon built, it's not about the temple. Don't get caught up in the temple and the details and all the stuff. The temple's this big arrow saying, He's coming. God's going to live among his people. And when Matthew says he is Emmanuel, God with us, he's saying, look, this is like you've been reading the menu for thousands of years and the main course is finally here. And the crazy thing is when you read through the Gospels, many of the Jewish people said, in effect, I think I'll just stick with the menu. No thanks. Jesus said, wait a minute, wait a minute. This temple... This temple is going to get torn down, and I'm going to rebuild it in three days. We like our temple just the way it is. I think we'll just keep it. Thank you very much. And they missed the main course because they were so caught up in the menu. And Matthew is saying, you want to know what all this stuff in the Old Testament is about, this stuff that you read and you're confused about and you, you struggle to make sense of it? It's all pointing you forward to Jesus. He's the ultimate fulfillment of God coming to live with his people. Secondly, Jesus is God who took on humanity. And the order of the words matters. He is God. He is God. Was God, is God, will always be God who took on humanity. He's not a man who became God. He's not like one part God, one part man. He is God, truly and fully God, who became truly and fully man while still being God. And it hurts your brain and it hurts my brain and your kids ask about it and you don't know how to say it, but that's how you say it. He's God who became man without ceasing to be God. Philippians 2. He was in the form of God, and he took the form of a servant. Colossians 1 says he is the image of the invisible God. He was before all things, he made all things, and he upholds all things. Hebrews 1, he's the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact 
imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe. He's God who became man. When you get that through your brain, you go back, because you're going you're to have this resolution to read the Bible, right? And one of the first things you're going to come to is Genesis 1.27. And you're going to come to 1.27, it says God created man in his own image. And you're going to read that, and you're going to say, you know, I never thought about it before, but that's a really important verse. Why did he do that? He didn't do that for anything else that he made. He did it because he knew these people would need to be rescued. And for them to be rescued, the rescuer would have to become like one of them. So he makes people in his image. Why? So that he can become one of them. So that God can become man and save his people. And it leads us to the next thing you need to see. Jesus' death on the cross provided a way for sinful people to enjoy the presence of God. Paul explains it like this in 2 Corinthians 5. He says, The one who knew no sin, Jesus, became sin for us, sinful people, so that in Jesus we could become righteous. He knew no sin, but he took our sin. He became our sin so that we could become righteous. And he explains it with this word, He uses the word reconciliation. Your sins had separated you from God. Isaiah says that in Isaiah 59 too. Your sins have made a separation between you and God. He's hidden his face. He doesn't see. He's closed his ears. He doesn't hear. You're separated. And Paul says, but now you've been reconciled. You've been brought back together. Not because of anything that you've done, but because of what God has done for you through Christ. You've been reconciled. You don't have to run anymore like Adam and Eve in the garden. You don't have to hide in the more anymore like Adam and Eve in the garden. You've been brought back into a relationship with him. Long time ago, in the 11th century, there was a guy named Anselm of Canterbury. And he was a smart guy, and he wrote a lot of books. And he wrote a book. In English, the title is called Why God Was a Man. In Latin, it's Cordeus Homo. Uh, but he writes his book, Why God Was a Man. And this is what he says, Anselm, hundreds of years ago. He's trying to think all this stuff out in his brain. He says, look, what we really need is atonement. We need somebody to pay the penalty for our sins. Because he understood, unlike a lot of us, God is a holy God and we are sinful people and we just can't come waltzing into his presence and enjoy him. When we're around him as sinful people, we're terrified. We feel guilty. We're separated from him and it just doesn't work. And so he says, we need atonement. But then he says, if anybody's going to make atonement for us, it's got to be a man. It's got to be a human. It's got to be a person. It can't be a cow. Cows can't make atonement for people. Chickens can't make atonement for people. If somebody's going to pay the price for our sin, it's got to be one of us. But then in the same breath, he turns around and he says, but if anyone's going to make atonement for us, it's got to be God because we can't do it. And if any one of us tried to do it, all we could do is pay the price for our own sins, not anybody else's sins. And then he says it gets even worse because our sin is sin against an infinitely holy God. That that kind of sin requires an infinite punishment. A, A human, a finite person can't provide that kind of atonement. And he adds all these things together and he says, so for the atonement that we need, God, the infinite one, had to become man one of us, so that as a man, he could take our place. 
We're men, we're people, we're humans. And as a human, he took our place. And as God, from the beginning to the end, through all of it, he's able to take this infinite punishment that our sin deserves. God had to be man. And that's exactly what Matthew's telling you in Matthew 1. You and I celebrate Christmas because God came to be with us. It's not because he was bored. It's not because it looked like we were having a lot of fun down here and he wanted to be part of it. It's because he came to make atonement for our sins. He came on a rescue mission. He came to seek and to save the lost. And to do that, God became man to make the payment for our sins. The last idea is this. This is a good one. Jesus is preparing a place where God will spend eternity with his people. He's preparing a place where God will spend eternity with his people. And I'll put a few verses up on the screen for you to read with me. Look at this, John 14. Jesus speaking, he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. And my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Let me give you just a real simple one question Christmas test. You ready? When you read John 14, 1 to 3, what do you get more excited about? You don't have to answer it out loud. You don't have to write it on your paper. Just think about it. Be honest. What do you get more excited about? The Father's house with many rooms, the place that's being prepared for you and how great it's going to be and how awesome it's going to be. It's never going to be 15 degrees there. It's going to be awesome. Can't wait. Is that what gets you excited? The place? Or is it the person who's there? Because I talk to a lot of people and You talk to them about heaven, and it sounds like they're really excited to go to that place, but I don't know how excited they are about the person who makes the place great. And what Jesus is saying is, I'm preparing a place for you, and don't get me wrong, it's going to be a great place. You're going to love it, custom built. But the reason you're going to like it is because I'm there, and you get to be with me. John, who heard Jesus say this and wrote it down in his gospel, He got it. And this is what John says in the last book of the New Testament. He's describing the place. And he says, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. And he goes on to talk about the place sort of what it's going to look like and the beauty of it and the greatness of it. But before he does any of that, he stops and he says, look, let me tell you why it's a great place, this place that's going to come down out of heaven to the earth, to the new earth. It's a great place because God is there. And he's with his people. And he's their God, and they will dwell together. That's what we celebrate at Christmas, that God came to be with us. He came to live among us in the person of Jesus. God became man so that the God-man could make atonement for our sins. And then eternity, we could be the kind of people he created us to be. And we could live in the kind of place he created us to live. And that's his people in his presence. Let me pray for you. Father, we're grateful for 
Matthew's Christmas story and for these truths about Jesus that we find in Matthew 1. Father, forgive us when we fail to think about the gravity and the weightiness and the seriousness of your holiness. And forgive us when we fail to see the horror of our sin. Father, and we pray that this Christmas season, one of the things that we would celebrate is the amazing grace that you showed us in you becoming one of us, in God becoming man, so that you could die for us and you could make atonement for us and you could prepare a place for us and that the sin that separates us from you would be dealt with. Father, and we thank you for, for the fact that Jesus has done everything that needed to be done for us to be reconciled to you and to be with you. We thank you for the hope we have of an eternity with you. Father, we thank you for the promise that even now as we wait for eternity, we have you, we have your spirit living in us and living among us. Father, we pray that Christmas in our homes and in our families and in our hearts would be centered on the truth of the gospel and that it would be centered on Jesus. We pray in his name, amen. We're going to sing one more song and love for you to stand up and sing with us. It's an opportunity for you to respond to the word of God as we've studied it this morning. So you stand, you can come forward and visit with one of the pastors.